What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We begin today's podcast on a somber note as Trump-led rioters attacked the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday and temporarily prevented senators and congressmen from doing their constitutionally mandated duty of counting the votes. Nevertheless, they were eventually expelled from the Capitol, and the process went on, and Joe Biden is now president-elect of the United States. Some of this week's stories we took a look at include the game-changer in compliance, the anti-money laundering law of 2020, Dick Casson on why you need a compliance victory plan in 2021, the CFTC's foray into FCPA enforcement creates new risks, Aaron Nicodemus in Compliance Week, was the Goldman Sachs FCPA resolution just and proper, Ginny Klein in GAB. Jim Deloach asks, is your digital culture mature in CCI? Andrew Burt asks, what are your compliance resolutions for 2021 in NAVAX Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog? First Solar Wind shareholder action is filed. Kevin LaCroix in DNO Diary reports, rethinking corporate enforcement, John Coffey in Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. We have a new uh, guest on this month's Compliance Life, a review of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, and some upcoming webinars. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, uh, the voice of compliance and now the face of compliance, at least on this video, together with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for our first ever live streaming this week in FCPA. Uh, so, Jay, first of all, welcome to this test tech run. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you and see you and see everyone out there on the Internet. Well, according to my cell phone, we are live on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, uh, send us a, a note to let us know you're there and we'll see if we can get it. Um, Jay, we really need to start today's episode on a very somber note because as probably everyone in America and probably most people in the world know, yesterday President Trump incited insurrection against the United States, the American people, and our democracy. Um, he incited his followers to riot, uh, to go to the Capitol Hill and riot, uh, invade Congress, try to stop Congress from engaging in its constitutional duty to count votes from the electors in the several states. It is, um, it was sickening, it was maddening, it was sad, um, kind of all of these things. Uh, I woke up this morning as sad for our country as as I've ever been, even even more than 9-11, because at 9-11, we at least knew we were attacked by outsiders, not we were not attacked by Americans. So Matt Kelly has just reported we are live on LinkedIn. So welcome, LinkedIn. Hey, Maybe you some of your thoughts. Um, I've just had this uh, perpetual pit in my stomach uh, since it started. And, you know, I, I started watching the TV yesterday morning, uh, or yesterday afternoon when they were starting to look at approving, approving the ballots and 
you know, I, I saw some uh, anti folks get up and speak in the Senate, and I just said, you know, I, I can't believe they're still going on with this. And then next after that, news news of the breach happened, and it was just, uh, you know, I try to think about how these things are going to play out. And I think in the back of my mind, I knew something like this could happen, but I, I never thought I could visualize it until we saw those chilling video from yesterday. So thank you for that comment, uh, Christine. Um, Jay, uh, in spite of what happened yesterday, we had uh, some interesting things this week, the first week of 2021, uh, and we uh, wanted to maybe go over those, once again recognizing just how somber uh, all of this is. Uh, I would also say, uh, and I won't speak for Jay, I'll let him speak for himself on this, but I certainly joined the call of uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, numerous other senators and representatives of both political parties to remove President Trump via the 25th Amendment or uh, if uh, Vice President Pence is unwilling to do that. I think he needs to be impeached. As my wife asked me last night, said, does he still have the codes? And unfortunately, he does. So it's clear uh, he has lost the capacity to govern and probably lost the will. So what are your thoughts on that, Jay? Uh, I would agree, Tom. Um, it's just, uh, you know, there's 13 more days left to the inauguration, and I, I just can't fathom what else can go wrong in the next 13 days. But with his disregard that he uh, showed yesterday by mobilizing an insurrection, he, he no longer should be leading this country. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to move to some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Uh, Jay, number one, and I think this should be number one, is the uh, passage at, on January 1, 2020, of the anti-money laundering law of 2020. It was part of the National Defense Authorization Act, and it is a real game changer in compliance. It deals with, uh, as its title says, anti-money laundering. It's primarily focused on financial institutions, but um, it has broader implications. Uh, it has uh, it bans basically anonymous shell corporations. It requires ultimate beneficial owners of companies to identify themselves both to financial institutions and uh, during formation of corporations. So that's going to be the big change for the United States going forward. Uh, we're going to have um, uh, a robust uh, re repository now of not only UBOs, but uh, any shell corporations. Uh, FinCEN has increased enforcement powers. They have increased enforcement penalties. They have increased funding. There are other groups that are targeted in this law. So antiquities dealers are going to uh, have to give out more information about uh, the purchasers and others. So um, there's uh, focus on China. There's focus on Russia. There's focus on uh, education. There's even a study, Jay, around uh, deferred prosecution agreements and the efficacy of DPAs. So that's going to be a welcome uh, bit of information. There's also an incredibly robust whistleblowing uh, process, uh, uh, provisions rather. So uh, whistleblowers can now get increased awards reporting to the Department of Treasury. It uh, does not exclude internal audit or compliance practitioners or general counsel from being whistleblowers. Uh, so that is certainly a big change, and there's robust anti-retaliation provisions. I really can't emphasize enough, Jay, how this is a game changer. 
they've been trying to change this law since 2011. This is the uh, first change of the Bank Secrecy Act since um, the Patriot Act of 2001 happened after the aftermath of 9-11. So um, although it does focus on financial institutions, I think it has huge implications for the commercial world. Uh, and we will see uh, companies gravitate to the standard of uh, knowing who the ultimate beneficial owners are, as banks will have this information, and I think this will become ubiquitous across the United States. It's certainly a welcome addition. Any thoughts uh, beyond those, Jay? I think you've done a great job of articulating, Tom. It, it sounds like uh, we've uh, been in need for this. Uh, it's been 20 years in the way making, and it's uh, good that it's finally passed. Um, next up, we turn to the FCPA blog, and... Um, Richard Casson, who's the founder of it, and he t says that every compliance team needs a 2021 victory plan. And uh, I guess he wrote this uh, before the events of yesterday, and he was talking to his publisher and said that January 2021 already feels as bad as 2020. And his publisher said, you're suffering from ennui. And ennui besides being a great French word, means a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. Yet that's exactly how it feels right now. And, you know, why would a third wave made early in 1919 feel any better than 1918? And in 1944, how could that somehow be any worse than 1943? So maybe 2021 will be worse than last year. And last month, he had uh, read an article in the Harvard Business Review about uh, doing away with patients with feel-good languages and warm fuzzies and saying, we need to pull together. But instead, you should give your compliance team some concrete objectives to achieve in the following year. Along with cultivating resilience, inject energy, because frankly, the second wave we're in is not exciting at all and people report feeling bored, disconnected, or unnerved. So how do you inject energy into a situation? Share success stories, divide long projects into sprints, and talk more. But also shorten endless Zoom meetings, cutting untumbleweed projects, and allow constructive conflicts and honest feedback with your team. Everyone hopes that the vaccines will accomplish what lockdown, quarantines, and border closings hasn't done that herd immunity is, is real and coming soon, and that our fragile republic will survive another peaceful transfer of power. But let's be honest, most of us today feel some combination of sad, mad, fearful, jangled, and exhausted, flattened out. Ennui is closing in, but we know what to do. We have a plan and we can fight back, and that might be the only way to make 2021 better than 2020. Jay, uh, next up, we have an article from Aaron Nicodemus over at Compliance Week, and it is on the CFTC's foray into FCPA enforcement and his view that it creates some new risk factors. Uh, probably most listeners are aware of the Vital FCPA enforcement action, which uh, happened in December. And one of the interesting things about it was a CFTC component because Vital was a trader and uh its conduct was intended to secure unlawful competition in trading physical oil products and related derivatives. Uh, he quotes Kara Brockmeyer, former chief of the F SEC, 
FCPA unit, who said, quote, firms need to widen the circle when assessing the fallout from a potential FCPA violation. And uh, this was the first CFTC FCPA uh, investigation. So I think it's uh, something that every compliance practitioner needs to be uh, aware of. And that uh, if you have operations in your company that are subject to the CFTC, you need to do a risk assessment uh, for them. Uh, and if you are involved at all in oil trading, uh, any trade outside the United States is probably going to have a FCPA touch point because you're either going to be buying uh, oil and gas from a national oil company or selling to a national oil company. So um, you need to, to assess those risks and go forward. Thanks, Tom. So next up, uh, we have an article that comes to us from the Global Anti-Corruption blog. It's written by Jenny Klein, and Jenny asks, was the Goldman Sachs FCPA resolution just and appropriate? So this has been a, a case that we covered uh, extensively over the past couple of years with uh, Tom's favorite fraudster, Jay Lowe. And uh, just to recap for anybody who isn't familiar with the story, in late October, the U.S. Department of Justice announced a major settlement with Goldman Sachs on the 1MDB scandal. To briefly recap, the international bribery scheme concerned Malaysian officials who embezzled an estimated $4.5 billion from a fund designed, uh, designed to finance infrastructure and economic development projects. And between 2012 and 2013, Goldsman helped raise $6.5 billion and took a fee of $600 million for arranging that financing. As part of the settlement with the DOJ, Goldman agreed to pay over $2.9 billion, that's right, with a B, to authorities in the U.S., Hong Kong, U.K., and Singapore. Despite these eye-popping numbers, including what appears to be the largest FCPA fine ever, some exper experts said that $2.5 billion wasn't enough. Yet an assessment of this punishment must also include penalties that extend beyond the government's imposed fines. Indeed, some regard Goldman Sachs settlement as a slap on the wrist. For one thing, the financial penalties really are quite large. A $2.5 billion penalty is substantial, even for a company with revenues as high as Goldman's. While the parent corporation and top-level executives will avoid criminal liability, Goldman still begrudgingly took an unsuspecting, un unprecedented step. Their Asian subsidiary pled guilty to criminal wrongdoing and tarnished the 151-year-old bank. The bank itself also sought to, to impose financial accountability on senior executives who failed to detect and prevent the criminal wrongdoing. Finally, none of Goldman's senior executives faced criminal charges, but Tim Leisner was delivered on a platter to regulators and as a, master, as a rogue employee and a master conman. The bank similarly distanced itself from co-conspirator Joe Roger Ng, yet it does appear the government did prosecute the most culpable Goldman employees, even as it left by higher-ups and shareholders out of the court of public opinion. The lack of prosecutions of senior executives continues to strike many as tr troublesome, but it was probably the right call. As for the failure of the government to pursue criminal liability for the parent firm, as the government had initially threatened, this would have had significant collateral consequences that would have borne, been large, lar largely borne by shareholders. 
The bank also had to swallow both a substantial financial penalty and significant regulatory harm. So while Goldman Sachs' involvement may not have ended with a made-for-Hollywood made Wolf of Wall Street ending, the resolution of the case was, in fact, just and appropriate. Uh, Jay, next up, we have an article by the always great Jim Deloach writing in CCI, and he asks the question, or rather poses, has your organization assessed its digital readiness? And he talks about digital maturity, and I just want to go through these five because I found them uh, really interesting, and it really, I think, will help compliance officers understand where they might be. So at the low end is the digital skeptic. These are companies that are laggards in reacting to innovation, that's happening around it. They know they need to match these capabilities, but for whatever reason, they don't. Second, the digital beginner. These are companies that embrace the need to change and succeed in implementing new technologies, resulting in a collection of point solutions across businesses. Number three, digital followers. They have a clear digital strategy and they make quick decisions in response to innovation of others, but they are clearly followers. Four, digitally advanced. These are companies that have progressed in their digital transformation efforts by embracing and experimenting with technologies to achieve high levels of automation. And number five, the digital leader. The distinction between companies that are advanced and those that are leaders lies in their proven ability to disrupt industries. I think this article is particularly appropriate for uh, where we are right now. One of the key elements from the 2020 uh, evaluation uh, update to the 2020 evaluations of corporate compliance programs by the Department of Justice was focusing on data. Corporate compliance officers must now uh, have access to data, data whether it's siloed, whether it's in data lakes. And as we move to the ability to access data, Jay, the question becomes, how are you using the data? So Jim's article is, uh, Jim is great, so you should read, first of all, anything he writes. Uh, but second of all, um, uh, it really will give you uh, an idea of where you are and where you need to grow. And really the last point, Jay, is not so much the need for CCOs and companies to use data, but as a compliance professional, uh, this is something you absolutely need to have in your in your wheelhouse. As we move into now, you know, the cabins were past 2020 and maybe the first seven days, or the first six days of 2021 have not been that great, but... Um, Compliance professionals are going to have to learn this skill. And as you move into the later parts of this decade, having uh, mature in your own digital knowledge is going to be absolutely critical. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we have an article by Andrew Burt, which appeared in the Navix Global Risk and Compliance Matters blog. And he asks, what are your compliance resolutions for 2021? It's that time of year again, the moment when we take stock over the year that was and anticipate what is to come. We often make resolutions, but it's very hard to keep them. Andrew suggests that we should choose resolutions that are worth our interest in investment and goals that you'll make time for even when it's in short supply. In recent years, the DOJ has given similar advice and its guidance for evaluation incorporating corporate compliance programs Use risk assessments and lessons learned to identify problem areas and set targeted goals. Adopt performance-based metrics to measure the impact of your compliance practices. Conduct regular periodic reviews to make informed updates. Engage organizational commitment by how fully it funds and empowers its employees in compliance functions. 
here are three resolutions that may pay dividends for you in the coming year. Number one, makes complete sense, conduct a risk assessment. A thorough risk assessment is at the core of every well-designed corporate compliance program. Compliance officers need to develop an informed risk profile that can serve as a basis for your program's decision-making. Number two, cultivate commitment by senior and middle management. Gaining leadership support can often feel like a catch-22. Buy-in is often contingent upon demonstrable results, which are the results of a well-supported compliance function. However, there are things risk and compliance officers can do to start garnering internal support. And number three, implement your risk-based approach to regulatory compliance. One of the most prominent messages embedded in the DOJ's 2020 guidance is the need for a risk-based approach to regulatory compliance. The document makes clear that prosecutors investigating your program will want to know if you devote appropriate time and resources to high-risk transactions. They expect to see risk-based training with tailored training for high-risk and control employees. When it comes to risk-based training, create a training plan to map out audience-specific training. Also, consider using micro-learning courses to supplement your core training. As our recent benchmark shows, micro-learning is a hallmark of advanced compliance programs. And finally, make sure to screen and continuously monitor your third parties. These targeted, realistic, and measurable resolutions can help give you the strong start to the new year that you and your department will need. Just remember, the most important factor in determining a resolution's success is personal investment. The more these commitments matter to you, the more you are likely to keep them, and the more your team is likely to join in. Uh, Jay, next up, we have the first uh, article probably of many around solar winds. And this comes to us from Kevin LaCroix on his always great DNO diary. And the solar wind itself, solar winds, was hit with a security suit based upon the third party government actor cyber attack. And the reason I thought this was significant is as it is the first case. But Kevin talks about and looks at things from a very different perspective, yet applicable to the compliance arena. And that he, he takes a look at it from uh, the insurance coverage perspective. And as you might guess from the name, DNO, the responsibility of uh, directors and officers. So when you have this type of suit, uh, if you think to the Bluebell case from last year, uh, Marchant case from the Delaware Supreme Court and the obligations of a board of directors, uh, they are certainly expanding. Uh, Caremark is expanding. And uh, now we have cyber. So what has your board done around cyber? Is there a cyber expert on the board? Do you have a cyber resource on the board? Has the board been briefed on your cybersecurity protocol? Has the board been uh, actively engaged in oversight? All of these questions, I think, uh, are going to apply to a cybersecurity program. While uh, boards are garnering more and more responsibility as more and more significant risks arise, Boards have to be more nimble, more agile, and more quick. And Kevin writes about this often, once again, from the DNO perspective. Uh, also, uh, do you have coverage for this? Do you have uh, DNO coverage for this? That's uh, going to be very important for every board of director. So uh, check out the article. Uh, you should actually bookmark Kevin and, and get his stuff because it's really good. Once again, a little different perspective and a little different focus, but certainly applicable to the compliance professional going forward. 
Yeah, Kevin has great stuff. Uh, here's our last article for the article sections. This comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum of Corporate Governance. And it's a, a fascinating interview that's uh, with a gentleman named John C. Coffey Jr., who's a law professor at Columbia University. And the post is based on his recent book, Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Crisis of Under-Enforcement. And a familiar pattern that plays out over and over in corporate prosecutions, a U.S. attorney's office begins an investigation and quickly finds its scope or overwhelm logistics. As the government can't handle this, they reach out to outside counsel who has the resources that they can apply to a large global investigation. Almost inevitably, the case of a larger corporations with decentralized structures, the U.S. attorney will agree to defend it hiring an independent law firm, and this can cost the company up to $100 million in expenses. Worse yet, the investigation conducted by the corporation by the retained counsel really identify officials above a fairly junior level. Put simply, independent investigations are the hottest growth area in big law, and successful counsel do not want to have a reputation for being suspicious of their clients. So what should be done? One possibility is to have the prosecution pick the law firm, but once the government controls the investigation, the Fifth Amendment comes into play and changes the complexion of the investigation. So what should be done? One possibility is to, oops, sorry. Another possibility is to spell out what he talks about in his recent book is to deliberately structure a prisoner's dilemma so that both the corporation and the employees are highly incentivized to turn the other in. What threat could cause corporations to agree to turn in senior executives? Clearly, current penalties are not sufficient. We need to therefore focus on the necessarily penalties on shareholders who alone can take action to reform their firm and who are probably for the most part well diversified. So how do you do this? One thing he proposes is something called an equity fine, a fine levied not in cash but in common shares. The fine would transfer some percentage of the corporation's authorized but unissued stock to a victim compensation fund forcing the company to issue 10 to 20% of its stock is certainly severe enough to deter shareholders through dilution, but it has no real impact on low-level employees. Defense account will, counsel will respond that in calling for such reform, that senior executives are guilty when they may only be ignorant. That is indeed possible and often likely, but it's probably a larger problem, as it implies that corporation has inadequate internal controls. This, too, can be corrected by sentencing. One measure that he proposes is to use corporate probation to impose incapacitative and preventative restraints. Put bluntly, incentive compensation can be created, can be creating perverse incentives for employees who risk defying the law. Equally important, such a restriction would have dramatic deterrent impact on the corporation's employees, who are not deterred much, if at all, by a large monetary fine on their corporation. If threatened with the loss of incentive compensation, fellow employees not directly involved in the crime might resist, or they might even blow the whistle misbehaving fellow on misbehaving fellow employees. Today, the incentives for employees not directly involved in the crime are to remain quiet bystanders, 
saying nothing and doing nothing. So I have a feeling that this might be my first book for 2021. Again, it's called Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Crisis of Under-Enforcement, and we link to it in the show notes. Uh, Jay, we have a new month, so uh, we have a new guest on the Compliance Live. And this month I have Gwen Hassan. Uh, Gwen is the Managing Director of Compliance at uh, CHN Industrial. Uh, she has been basically in Midwest Industrials all of her compliance career. So it's a great uh, story about how she got to compliance. And we started with uh, episode one. So check out this week's, or rather this month's, the Compliance Life and the introduction uh, today uh, or this week with uh, Gwen Hassan. Over on um, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, January is the month where I lay out uh, 31 things you need to do for your compliance program to enhance it. I've included uh, all of the information that came from the year 2020 in an update, updated version. So we're going to have more exciting news around this, but uh, 31 days to a more effective compliance program, literally every day in January, post at noon central. Uh, check it out uh, for the latest on having an um, effective compliance program. You want to tell sure. us about uh, some of the events, Jay? Yeah, we've got a couple um, podcasts or um, webinars that we think you might be interested in. Uh, please join Tom on a conversive event called Future Proof Your Compliance Program for 2021. This will take place on uh, two weeks from yesterday, January 20th, from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Time. And there is a link in the show notes to register. And Tom also has something going on with uh, K2 Integrity. This event will be Thursday, January 14th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. When financial crimes compliance experts respond to your AML, CFT sanctions, and other financial integrity rating questions, and there's also a link to register and submit questions on uh, the show notes. Well, Jay, we are at the end of our first uh, ever live This Week in FCPA. I think we were successful with our technology. Uh, we've got uh, some claps and other great uh, comments from many of uh, uh, the, the listeners. So, uh, Adam, I have to absolutely agree with you. I hope 2021 is not uh, a continuation of 2020. Um, it's our tradition that Jay Rosen takes us home. So, Jay, you want to take us home for our first live stream event? I will. So on behalf of Tom Fox, who is not only the compliance evangelist, but the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 234 for the week ending January 8th, 2021 the Democracy Attacked Edition. As I usually close out and have been doing this for the past 10 months or so, I wish that you and your family are safe, that you are healthy, and that you will be able to join us again and next week. Uh, please be positive and uh, know that if we stick together, we should make it through this and hopefully we can do what Rick, Richard Casson was talking about and make 2021 better than the year of 2020. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this, our first live streaming edition of This Week in FCPA. 
We were able to do it without too many technical glitches. So Jay and I will uh, probably take this format into 2021 uh, for the rest of the year. We're also doing this on Compliance Into the Weeds with Matt Kelly, and we're going to extend it to the Everything Compliance Gang. So get ready for some great video uh, podcast in 2021, all courtesy of the Compliance Podcast Network. We've linked to all of the articles in the show notes, so please uh, check them out. I know you will find them very interesting and useful going forward. As I mentioned, uh, This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.